Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, coming, and sorry for the, the short delay. I'm um, very pleased to introduce Anthony White QC, who's uh, a leading member of Matrix Law Chambers. Um, he specialises in media and information law, uh, not only defamation and breach of confidence, but also this developing law in the area of privacy and data protection. He's got a number of publications to his name related to this, and he's appeared at numerous media conferences talking about the relevant legal issues, um, and also appeared as the QC in the Naomi Campbell case, for Naomi Campbell, against uh, her, in her privacy claim against Mirror Group newspapers. We're um, very lucky to, to have you to come along and talk to us. And the topic of the talk is data protection, freedom of expression, and the media. Over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I was actually the second um, counsel for Naomi Campbell. I just did the data protection part of the case. I can't claim credit for how well it went in the House of Lords. Um, we're at a slightly paradoxical stage in the development of the law in this area. We've got two strands. We've got judge-made developing law of privacy. That is proceeding against a background of parliamentary intervention based on a, on a European directive. Um, the statutory provisions regulate the use of personal data. The law of privacy is all about personal information, otherwise personal data. The, um, both strands have as one of their main objectives the reconciliation of the requirements of Articles 8 and 10 of the Convention whenever they impact, in particular, upon the media. They ought, um, one might have thought, to have arrived at a similar reconciliation of those two articles. What I want to highlight in particular to you today is the way in which I perceive the judge-made law of privacy diverging from the public policy which underlies the statutory regulation of the protection of data in one particularly important area, namely publication in the public interest. And um, I will seek to explain why we've got into that position and conclude that we need a further legislative adjustment. Um, I know uh, the Home Secretary is introducing something about data protection to do with medical records in a bill at the moment. And it may be that um, one could piggyback onto that amendment um, to do the job that I want to spell out. Um, but how do we get here? Let's first of all look at the um, judge-made law as it is unrolling. When I started the bar a regrettably long time ago, nearly 30 years ago, I did a lot of work for an organization then called NCCL. Um, one of the first instructions I got from NCCL was about a woman who appeared without her knowledge or consent in a medical textbook a rather glorious picture of her bloodied nether regions graced, I think, page five of a chapter on a particular disorder. I was sent down to the Chancery Division to try and get an injunction. And the judge just scratched his head. He said, copyright belonged to the photographer or to the publisher. Um, can't see um, that there was any relationship of confidence here. So um, where are we going? How can you possibly injunct that? And I was promptly left, although the judge did extract some sort of undertakings from the publisher before I was forced to leave court. But I was left with the real sense that there was a bit of a gap in traditional English law. And, and, and the way it arose was this. Be before the Human Rights Act came into force, 
we didn't actually have in this country any general cause of action for invasion of privacy. We did have an equitable cause of action in particular for breach of confidence. And we had various other um, remedies, in particular relating to the infliction of deliberate harm. But the common law and equitable doctrines had not really explored the field of privacy. Um, it's interesting in some of the cases I'm going to mention to you, how often the royal family crops up in this area. The earliest case one can really trace in English privacy law is a case involving Prince Albert and etchings made of Queen Victoria where in it, as long as 1849, the then Vice-Chancellor um, granted an injunction to restrain the um, publisher of certain of those etchings from selling them um, on the grounds of breach of confidence. And the language is quite remarkable if you go all the way back to 1849. The Vice-Chancellor used expressions relating to intrusion, intrusion into the privacy of domestic life. And it's language that's terribly prescient when you read the modern Strasbourg jurisprudence and indeed the developing English jurisprudence. We talk in exactly those terms. But there we are, 1849, and we were already tentatively embarking on it. That um, limb of English jurisprudence went off to the states and was enormously influential in the development of the right to be let alone under US law. Now, US law is developed in a very different way, largely because of the primacy of freedom of expression under the First Amendment. But a lot of the um, control of privacy owes its origin to those early English cases. In the decades that followed, um, one can search in vain for more than a handful of what are identifiable as privacy cases. In the 60s, um, a judge injuncted um, in a famous case, one aristocrat from selling secrets about the marriage bed. Um, and in the 1980s, Lord Brown Wilkinson, then a first instance judge, granted an injunction to restrain the um, disclosure of information about a lesbian affair. But one had very few instances. And in a case which became infamous, a case called Kay and Robertson, where a journalist went uninvited into the hospital room of an actor who was suffering from grievous brain injuries, purported to conduct an interview and take photographs on the entirely spurious basis that the person had consented, and then um, went to publish them in the national press. The Court of Appeal, um, presided over by no lesser judge than Tom Bingham, and including Lord Justice Leggett at the time, rang their hands. They were appalled at what had happened, but they couldn't see any sensible development of English common law to grant an injunction. In the end, they took refuge in passing off on the basis that the newspaper had suggested that the actor had given consent. But it was a feeble judicial response to what was a manifestly appalling problem. Um, the mid-1990s, things start to pick up. I, had the great pleasure to be involved in another royal family case involving Princess Diana. Um, Princess Diana liked to go to a gym in West London where she liked to exercise in the picture windows, which actually gave on to a public street. The um, disreputable um, gym owner, my client, I'm glad to say, um, saw an opportunity to make some money and he hid a camera in a beam above the particular place where Princess Diana exercised and took a series of photographs of it. They were extremely flattering photographs and, and he sold them, I think, to the Mirror, I can't remember, one of the Sunday papers. But what at that time was a lot of money. Um, 
she sued in both breach of confidence and breach of contract. It came before Mr Justice Drake, ex parte, and he was so appalled that he granted a permanent injunction without a cross undertaking in damages, even though the photographs were manifestly of commercial value. Um, in, in due course, that was adjusted by a slightly more liberal judge, and the case proceeded towards a trial. One of the principal defences that we were groping towards on behalf of the defendant in that case was the consequence of Princess Diana doing this activity in a public place. And although we didn't use the expression a reasonable expectation of privacy, our defence asserted that she must have expected to be seen by members of the public, and that impacted on whether she had a cause of action in confidence. Um, the case was settled shortly before trial, so we never got to explore that rather interesting material. We also um, slightly scurrilously pleaded that she had courted publicity and annexed a very large number of press articles and photographs to the defence um, in the hope that we might get to cross-examine her about that. And no doubt that might have been one of the reasons for the settlement. But, but all of those sorts of issues started to come up from the mid-1990s onwards. The um, next development that I chart is in Europe, where the Commission declared inadmissible a complaint by Princess Diana's relatives, the Earl Spencer and his wife, complaining that press hounding and in, um, disclosures were effectively an infringement of their Article 8 rights. Some of you may remember that Earl Spencer's wife had an eating disorder, and the press went to, some of the tabloid press went to the extent of photographing her behind a wall in her garden and then ran an article, I think the headline was something like So Thin, and it was a long lens photograph of this poor, plainly distressed woman taken in circumstances where she manifestly didn't consent or even know that the photograph was taken. But the, the interesting thing was the reason why the Commission declared it inadmissible. They declared it inadmissible because the UK government were able to persuade the Commission that in fact there was a potential domestic remedy, that the law of breach of confidence could in those circumstances be adapted and was in the process of gradual evolution into a stage where it could provide a remedy. And so it was um, ruled inadmissible on the ground of non-exhaustion of domestic remedies. The next step is the Human Rights Act, which comes into force in October 2000. The first significant case to test um, the application of Article 8 in the domestic courts was, as you'll probably all appreciate, Douglas and Hello. The actual transaction which gave rise to that case occurred within a month of the Human Rights Act coming into force. It was almost as if Michael Tugendhat had set it up. It was such a terrific case to um, test out the waters of Article 8. What actually happened in the first round, first of, I think, eight or nine rounds of Douglas and Hello, was an ex parte injunction was granted. It was subsequently discharged on the basis that damages would be an adequate remedy, something the Court of Appeal later said they thought was a mistake, or subsequent Court of Appeal thought was a mistake. But the importance of the case, of course, was that all members of the Court of Appeal recognised that there was a cause of action to underlie the grant of the interim injunction. And that cause of action was in the developing area of invasion of privacy. And Lord Justice Sedley's judgment was, was particularly influential from that point onwards, because what he recognised was, to some extent, the law had become obsessed with labelling, to become obsessed, as English law so often has done in the past, with categorisation rather than broad principle. 
and he appreciated that you didn't have to do a lot more than change the label of breach of confidence so as to give yourself a different perspective on it in order to protect a situation um, like the present. What he also realized, um, Lord Justice Sedley, was that the reason privacy matters as a principle is because it reflects or draws upon what he called the fundamental value of personal autonomy. And those words have, have been tremendously influential in the cases which followed. Um, but before we, we step onto the um, Human Rights Act developments, we should remember the um, dying gasps of privacy in the pre-Human Rights Act era. Um, it wasn't a media case, but the case of Wainwright, which involved strip searching in prisons, arrived at the House of Lords after Douglas and Hullo had been decided in the Court of Appeal and before Naomi Campbell arrived there. The um, county court judge who'd heard the case at first instance, it was a case, of course, which arose from facts prior to the Human Rights Act, um, had deliberately uh, extended the law of tort in a manner he thought was consistent with Article 8 and given a remedy to um, a mother who was strip-searched, her son who was strip-searched, and her son who had also um, suffered a battery at the time. The only part of those remedies which survived the appellate process was the finding of battery. Both the Court of Appeal and the House of Lords rejected any claim based on invasion of privacy. And Lord Hoffman uh, looked specifically at Stephen Sedley's dictum in Douglas and Hello, and in what was a slightly magisterial judicial comment, um, said that however impressive the language was, it couldn't support a principle of privacy so abstract as to develop the common law in a way which would assist the Wainwrights. Um, was regarded generally, at least in the circles I moved in, as a very uh, conservative and um, unambitious judgment. Um, it's now had its quietus in Europe. The um, European Court of Human Rights held in the case um, towards, I think, the end of September 2006, long after the event, that Mrs. Wainwright and her son did or should have a remedy under English law for the violation of their Article 8 rights. And the lack of a remedy meant there was also a violation of their Article 13 rights. So although Wainwright is customarily mentioned as a step on the um, timeline of the development of the law in this area, it's no longer going to have any or any significant influence. The case which has um, cast a long shadow or had a, a great influence on this area of the law is the next House of Lords case, the Naomi Campbell case. Naomi Campbell is important for a number of reasons, not least because it was one of those watershed cases. It could have gone either way and either delayed the development of an Article 8 cause of action in English law post the Human Rights Act or spurred it on. It's also important because it um, recognised Stephen Sedley's um, insight about renaming the developing cause of action in breach of confidence, and it gave the name to what we now call misuse of private information, unjustified publication of personal information. The um, other reason the case is terribly important is because it introduced some structure, some rigour to how you approach um, the unjustified publication or threatened unjustified publication of personal information. And it did, did that by recognising that in the, Naomi, um, in the Naomi Campbell articles there are actually five different strands of private information which were in play. And one of the 
critical features of Naomi Campbell for anybody in practice, and when you're pleading or when you're arguing a case, is to understand the need for dissection of any disclosure into layers and considering in relation to each layer what the um, relative justifications may be for the publication. The five elements um, were firstly that Naomi Campbell was a drug addict. Um, What's interesting is that was conceded by the newspaper to be both private and confidential information of a quasi-medical kind, um, absent and therefore protectable, absent countervailing considerations. Second piece of information was that um, Naomi Campbell was receiving treatment for her drug addiction. Again, conceded to be private and confidential, and rightly so. It's actually like any other kind of medical information. The fact that um, the red top papers see it as a drug story doesn't mean it isn't actually a medicine story. Third piece of information was um, the fact that the treatment she was receiving was provided by a particular organization, Narcotics Anonymous. The fourth, and in a sense this is where um, things became sticky for the newspaper, the fourth was certain details of the treatment. Because what had happened was there was a mole inside the meetings. So the journalist had been told some of the things actually said what Naomi Campbell's face looked like when she um, made a certain point or a point was made about her. How many people were there, that sort of thing. And then, crucially, um, a photograph. There's a photograph which probably all of you recall of her coming out of an unmarked door into a public street. Some of the photographs had others around her whose faces were pixelated, but the main picture in the initial article was simply of a woman emerging from a doorway into a public street. Now, we had difficulties on our side. The difficulty we started with was that Naomi Campbell had repeatedly and publicly and falsely denied that she'd taken drugs. Um, she made statements such as, unlike other models, I've never um, fallen prey to drug abuse. Now that made it very difficult to counter the public interest arguments about um, the first and second pieces of information. The first, which that she had a drug problem, was um, the door to publication of that was opened by her false denials. The fact she was receiving treatment was regarded by all levels of judge as intricately bound up with the medical problems that the drug abuse had caused. But the real question was whether the law um, provided some justification, or perhaps looked at it another way, protection against disclosure of the third, fourth, and fifth layers of the private information. Now, that, that's, in one sense, a question of fact. It's a, a judgment um, which balances Articles 8 and 10 in a manner we'll discuss more in a minute. But that balancing exercise at first instance was seen as very clear-cut by Mr Justice Moreland. He thought that um, whilst the newspaper was perfectly entitled to set the record straight, what it couldn't do was, in the course of setting the record straight, almost gratuitously introduced details about the medical treatment and a photograph of her um, leaving it. The Court of Appeal couldn't have disagreed more strongly. Um, the whole atmosphere in court was quite electric. Um, from the outset, it was absolutely plain that Lord Justice Chadwick in particular regarded the case as absurd and the judge's balancing of the um, um, competing considerations as almost ununderstandable. 
one then gets to the House of Lords and you immediately are in different territory. It was apparent from about half an hour onwards that there were two views and two strongly held views about the balance that the judge had struck. And as we know, the Lords end up splitting 3-2 um, on essentially on the facts. What, um, the case is helpful, though, because although they split on the facts, they identify um, a series of matters of approach, which are, it's not entirely convincing, but Lord Hoffman in particular says that they're common ground between all five of the judges, and subsequent cases have treated them in that way. The first matter of approach which they um, recognised was that the principal thing you needed to develop the equitable cause of action, breach of confidence, wasn't so much to rename it, although that was important, but to move its centre of gravity away from the relationship, so that the previous cases have all involved friends or husbands or lovers, and move it to focus on the information in question, so that it's the information itself which gives rise to the obligation not to repeat it or deal with it in an unauthorised manner. In um, some strikingly modern language, the law lords accept that what the very um, old-fashioned black-letter law cause of action in um, breach of confidence had done, or needed to do, was to actually absorb the values of Articles 8 and 10 of the Convention and um, imbibe from those the sort of considerations which the European Court of Human Rights had identified in the Article 8 jurisprudence in particular. It had to resolve an important issue. It's, it's funny how old-fashioned or, or how long ago this now seems, but it had to resolve the issue of horizontality. Did the Article 8 right apply as between private individual and newspaper, or did it, as many thought in the early days of the Human Rights Act, apply only between individual and the state? And of course it decided, um, because of the positive obligation which had been recognised in Strasbourg, that it did apply between private individuals. It laid down um, the threshold test for when Article 8 is engaged. That again was a matter of real controversy before the Lord's hearing in Naomi Campbell. We've now grown used to the um, formula and indeed sometimes mouth it without thinking, a reasonable expectation of privacy. But that was a critical part in the reasoning. Strongly in contention was an Australian test based on the Lena Game Meets case of whether the disclosure would be highly offensive to a person of reasonable sensitivities. That, that test set the bar very much higher for the threshold and would have resulted, I think, in a very different development of our law. The Court of Appeal had thought that was a better test. The House of Lords disagreed. The Lords recognised, all of them, that the publication of a photograph taken in a public street might be actionable. Um, they assessed the competing importance of Articles 8 and 10 and building on and particularly Mr. Justice, sorry, Lord Justice Keane's judgment in Douglas and Hello held that there was no um, priority um, between them. They're both of fundamental importance, and the difficulty isn't deciding which trumps which. You'll probably all remember the, old, the very old language of um, Lord Hoffman when I think in the Court of Appeal saying freedom of speech is a card that always trumps. That's something we had to shed. We shed it by recognising that Article 8 was of equal importance, and the trick is not 
ranking them, but reconciling them. Then, mechanistically, how do you reconcile them? Now, of crucial importance to um, legal historians of the future will be an appreciation that a member of the appellate committee in the Naomi Campbell case was Baroness Hale. It was one of her first important cases in the House of Lords. She had um, given the leading judgment in a court of appeal case about children and disclosure of information called RES. And in RES, she had set out a structured, logical, step-by-step -step by which you could do a, a proportionality analysis of the competing Article 8 and Article 10 rights. That analysis of Baroness Hales in RES commanded universal assent amongst the law lords in Naomi Campbell, and it stood the test of time very well. It gives you something, again, from a practitioner's point of view, it gives you something you can do in a um, logical, um, detailed way, which has the prospect of arriving at the right answer, or an answer you can persuade the judge is the logical answer. And where you arrive at is an answer based upon proportionality. There has to be a right answer. It can, however, be um, a, an answer about which there's room for disagreement. One last part of Naomi Campbell that I think has got rather lost, um, I have to say these days I do rather more work for the media than against it, but all of the law lords um, thought that when you were applying this proportionality exercise, you had to allow the media defendant a margin of error or a degree of latitude. That's a very Strasbourg concept. I don't think any media defendant um, who's been to court in recent years thinks that that is given other than lip service at first instance in the Queen's Bench Division. Um, there isn't much room if the judge thinks there's a right answer as um, at least one of our first instance judges want to do, for this margin or degree of latitude. Um, the analysis in Naomi Campbell um, was then crystallised or distilled by Lord Stein in Ries, the case Baroness Hale had been involved in in the Court of Appeal, which then went to the Lords after Naomi Campbell did. And Lord Stein um, distilled Naomi Campbell into four propositions. First, that neither Article 8 or 10 takes precedence. Secondly, that where the two articles are in conflict, you have to have an intense focus on the rights being claimed. Um, what he meant by that was the value of the privacy right, because, of course, not all privacy rights are of equal importance. He meant the value of the free speech right, because not all free speech rights are of equal importance. His third proposition was that you had to look at the justifications for interfering or restricting with each right. And it, it seems remarkable now, and you probably all think this is remarkable, but when we were taking Naomi Campbell up through the courts, it took a long time to educate judges about the way in which a refusal of a remedy for infringement of Article 8 rights was itself um, an interference. The grant of a remedy for... Um, an Article 8 claim which interfered with publication or awarded damages afterwards was an interference with the Article 10 right. Quite, quite conceptually difficult. And then his fourth proposition was that the proportionality test has to be applied to each of the conflicting factors. The, I'll come back in a minute to the way in which um, Naomi Campbell's been taken forward in the domestic courts. Where I need to go next is to Strasbourg. Um, another 
interesting feature of Naomi Campbell was um, that the European Court of Human Rights decision in PEC came out between the Court of Appeal decision and the appellate committee considering whether to grant permission to appeal. And we wrote to the appellate committee and suggested that PEC was actually quite instructive on what ought to be the, the way forward for English law. And I, I personally think it was important in um, Lord Nichols and the other two deciding that this was a case in which permission should be granted. The, the real insight of PEC, as I see it, is to recognise that just because you think your activities or words or information may be seen by a number of others, perhaps your friends, perhaps all of us in this room, doesn't necessarily mean that you expect publication of those activities or that information to a wider audience. So Mr Peck had no reasonable expectation that his suicide attempt and its aftermath wouldn't be seen by one or two passers-by in the street. But he did have a very real expectation that it wouldn't be recorded on film and published in the national media or on television. That's a very different matter. And that educates one about the expectation of relative, albeit not absolute, privacy. What wasn't available when Naomi Campbell was decided was von Hanover. Von Hanover, in many ways, is, I believe, the critical case. Um, von Hanover, the, the facts you'll all know, um, Princess Caroline um, had conducted effectively a campaign against the German paparazzi magazines. She'd done so, and it's important to appreciate this, in the context um, not altogether of concern about um, the sanctity of her private life, but also about the commercial um, uh, scope for the exploitation of um, aspects of her life, including her image. Now, the German courts had struck a balance rather like the English courts. They had granted um, relief where the German magazines had printed photographs or were threatening to print photographs which either included her children or which were in public places but a secluded area. So examples were the back of a restaurant where it was dark and it was obvious you weren't seeking publicity, you'd taken yourself off to the quietest part. Um, another example bringing Anna Ford to mind is the quiet end of the beach. You, you go there if you want to be left alone. That concept of a, a secluded area of a, a, a public place is quite um, akin to the way in which the um, PCC code in England had suggested you might have a reasonable expectation of privacy even in a public place in some situations. Um, a lot of us, I think, thought that that German path was akin to the path we were likely to tread in English law. But, and this is why Van Hanover was so fundamentally important, the European Court of Human Rights held that German law had failed altogether to strike the right balance between privacy and freedom of expression. It built on Peck in an earlier case called PG and JH against the United Kingdom, which recognised that Article 8 has an impact um, in personal development in the sense that it has to protect what was called a zone of interaction with others, even in a public place. Not everything you do when you interact with your friends, your relatives, even if you're not behind your closed door, is public. And that's um, not the case um, for private individuals. Of course, Princess Caroline was 
what the German courts had dubbed a public figure par excellence. And we were grappling at the same time, as you'll recall, with people like footballers. How public was Gary Flitcroft? How public was David Beckham? To what extent were they role models, which meant that they were, I hesitate to use the word fair game, but certainly they had to have broader shoulders when it came to their expectations of privacy. And what um, von, Hover, von Hanover did, I think, greatly to the um, benefit of serious journalism in this country was to identify as the fundamental distinction the disclosure of private information which actually contributes to a serious debate, debate about politicians, public office holders, um, matters of public life which actually matter. That is um, um, possible justification for intrusion on an Article 8 right. That's to be contrasted with revealing details of private individuals who play no part in public life or, or no part in political or official public life but are simply celebrities. The disclosure of information about them adds nothing to a debate of real importance. It just sells newspapers, it sells TV. And the European Court described that both as the fundamental distinction and then in another influential passage, the decisive factor. The decisive factor is what contribution does it make to such a debate. And it, it seemed clear, I would suggest, following von Hanover, that one was going to reach a situation in England where 70% of what comes out in the news of the world every weekend, 60% of what appears in the tabloids every morning, is probably unlawful. It's got no public interest, it's no contribution to a debate of real importance. And if it wasn't for the Faustian pact between minor celebrities and that sort of publication, um, it wouldn't go on. Where, where do we then get to in English law? Um, there have been four important court of appeal cases. Um, Douglas and Hello, number three, which is actually the appeal against the trial um, judgment of Mr Justice Lindsay, upheld the awards to Michael Douglas and Catherine Zetter-Jones. But I don't regard it as the most important case because it's bedeviled by the soft IP problems that arose. Was privacy proprietary in any sense? Um, what was the importance of the parties standing to one side with commercial interests? And I think a lot of the analysis is, bedeviled probably the wrong word, it had to take on board that, and so it isn't as um, clear a focus on the privacy elements of the case. And, and I'm not going to talk this afternoon about what the House of Lords do about the soft IP elements, but I've written at length in the paper about it. It is actually very interesting um, if you wade through the House of Lords speeches to, to think about what the outcome of an appeal might have been by um, the newspaper, uh, sorry, by the defendant in relation to the awards to um, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zetter-Jones. I think Lord Walker at least thought that they were wrongly awarded damages. Part of his reasoning would completely undermines um, the approach taken below. But that's all for another day. Um, at the moment, I think the critical case is McKennett and Ash, the case about the biography of a Canadian folk singer. Um, and that case taken together with the Prince of Wales case and the Lord Brown case do enable some fairly clear principles to be teased out. Um, McKennett and Ash represents critically a swing back to orthodoxy in Naomi Campbell, as I'd emphasised, the House of Lords um, 
stressed that you took your focus away from the relationship of confidence onto the information itself. Of course, what happens in McKennett and Ash, where the book is written by a friend who's in a relationship of confidence with the claimant, is that you have both information which is private and a relationship, an old-fashioned relationship of confidence. Um, the defendant had actually signed a confidentiality agreement in relation to some of her dealings with McKennett. Um, but what the Court of Appeal laid emphasis on, and then this emphasis was repeated in the um, next case, the Prince of Wales case, is that the old-fashioned relationship of confidence hasn't ceased to have importance in this field. It's no longer a necessary ingredient to get your case off the ground, but where it's there, it's particularly significant. And what I want to emphasize about both McKennett and Ash and um, the Prince of Wales case is the insight the Court of Appeal provide is that the relationship of confidence between defendant and claimant or between um, claimant and defendant's source is one which is relevant both to the threshold question, is Article 8 engaged or is there a reasonable expectation of privacy? and also to the balancing exercise, where it weighs heavily in the balance you've got to strike between the Article 8 and Article 10 rights. And if you think about it, the, the way it's important on the first of those is by contract, you can make anything confidential. I can ask my gardener if I had one not to reveal to anyone what coloured crocuses I planted, and he or she could agree to that for consideration. Um, Article 8 alone would see that as well below the threshold before any possible relief was um, to be granted. In relation to the second limb, the balancing exercise, the reason it's important is there's actually a public interest in upholding confidential relationships. Society requires the enforcement of the trust we place in our friends, our employees, our um, consultants and the like, and that public interest can be a powerful thing to put in the um, Article 8 side of the scales. I could talk uh, quite a lot of length about McKennett and Ash, and um, if, if you get round to reading the paper, you'll see that it actually covers a great deal of ground. Another thing which it does, which is very important, is to um, accept and embrace von Hanover and the distinction which I've emphasised between matters which contribute to a, a debate of public importance and matters which don't. And in particular, um, it rejected as effectively outmoded or already overtaken the A against B concern that if you um, afforded too strong a protection to um, information about public figures of the Flitcroft sort or the Beckham sort, newspapers wouldn't sell, and there's a public interest in a free and vigorous press with lots of competing tabloids. That, um, is, I always found it a bit hard, and I always thought um, Lord Justice Laws had a slightly uncomfortable look on his face as he agreed with the principal judgment. But it, it couldn't stand with von Hanover, but of course under orthodox doctrine of precedent, it was previous Court of Appeal. But anyway, it, um, it didn't survive the <coughs> input of von Hanover on the McKennett case. Um, another important point it dealt with was um, something which, again, was a, a real problem in practice, which was the extent to which there could be a remedy for false private information. It's an uncomfortable feature of my dealings with the tabloid press in particular, that almost um, never is an article produced, even where they've got lots of information, which only contains true facts. 
um, David Mellor, do you remember the articles about his extramarital affairs? The, the journalist completely gratuitously put in that he liked to make love wearing a Chelsea strip. It had absolutely no factual foundation. It was a wonderful thing to put in the article. And it, that, that was in the days before a properly developed law of privacy. But I am afraid, I suspect, many Fleet Street journalists of salting articles with that sort of um, spice, I'm sorry, that's a bad mixed metaphor, salting articles with that sort of salt. Um, and one um, argument which looked promising for a time was whether the developing law based on breach of confidence would protect you if the allegations about your private life which appeared were actually false. Now, I'll come back in a minute to why that was. It's basically orthodox breach of confidence doesn't protect false private, false confidential information. It's just a, a, a lacuna. But in um, McKennett, that arose for decision, and both at first instance and in the Court of Appeal. Um, short shrift was given to the suggestion that some false elements in the private information might prevent the court from granting relief. Um, I'm going to go on, I think, through the Court of Appeal cases without pausing on um, Prince Charles. Perhaps say something about Lord Brown, which was the third of the trilogy of cases that came out in 2006-2007. Um, Lord Brown, you'll remember, is the case of an interim injunction sought to restrain publication of details about um, Lord Brown's affair um, with Jeff Chevalier. It was a complicated case because it involved both private information of a sexual type and also business information. As one of the allegations was that Lord Brown had been prone to discussing BP's commercial strategy with Mr Chevalier and telling Mr Chevalier about amusing things he'd witnessed at work about the way some of the senior officers in BP interacted. So it was, a, it was quite a, a problematic case and of course we all remember what happened to Lord Brown as a result of it. It's important, perhaps most of all, for what it taught us about the test for interim injunctive relief. Just as Naomi Campbell divided up the private information in that case into layers in terms of a final remedy, in Lord Brown's case, the Court of Appeal said you've got to look at each element, dissect the article into each of the elements of private information. In order to get an injunction under, because of the way in which Section 12.3 of the Human Rights Act is formulated, the claimant's got to show in relation to each of those items that um, he or she is likely to succeed at trial. And that, um, really important lesson in practice, that's often quite difficult. There are often bits of it which are very difficult. You can find um, clear answers to some layers, other layers you can't find clear answers to. The, the other reason Lord Brown's important is it takes one step further the um, assessment of the significance of a traditional relationship of confidence. What it goes back to my gardener um, example. What it says is that although the existence of a traditional relationship of confidence does impact on the first stage, is Article 8 engaged, it isn't of itself enough. So you can still, even when you take into account the pre-existing confidential relationship, have pieces of information which are insufficiently important, even though covered by the relationship, to get over the, the threshold, get over the first bar. Um, another feature of all three of those Court of Appeal cases, again, um, 
terribly important to barristers, perhaps less important to you who um, think about these things from a more sort of illuminating perspective, is what it says about procedure. Um, one agenda the Court of Appeal had was to try and cut down on appeals in this area. And so all three cases, backed up by another Court of Appeal case called Ackroyd, that came out at much the same time, say that it, the balancing exercise between Articles 8 and 10 is a, a call for the first instance judge. And the Court of Appeal won't step in unless the first instance judge gets it wrong in principle, reaches almost a sort of outside the range of reasonable um, disagreement type answer. And that was, it seems to me, self-evidently aimed at discouraging appeals. It's not the approach that's been taken in some other balancing exercise situations, but it's certainly where we've got to. Um, the fourth of the Court of Appeal cases is the J.K. Rowling's case, the case in which her infant child was photographed in his pushchair in Edinburgh. Um, in some ways, I think the first instance judgment of Mr. Justice Patton is more interesting than the Court of Appeal judgment in that case. He grappled um, in a way that I think has a, quite a lot of um, cogency with what, if anything, was left of Baroness Hale's popping out for a pint of milk example in Naomi Campbell. If just going shopping isn't sufficiently non-private um, to allow access to all the world when you're in a public place, it's hard to see what, if anything's left of that. Um, because of the way it went procedurally, all Mr Justice Patton did was to decide whether there was a reasonable expectation of privacy. He decided there wasn't. That meant when it went to the Court of Appeal, they overturned him on the first stage and held it was arguable there was reasonable expectation of privacy. They don't then decide the balancing exercise stage. So it's not, I don't find the Court of Appeal judgment particularly illuminating, although it does treat as settled this two-stage analysis in the three preceding Court of Appeal decisions. The stage one is Article 8 engaged, taking into account the pre-existing relationship of confidence. Stage two, how does the balancing exercise come out? As I said earlier, there's a lot of ink spilt in the paper on the House of Lords in Douglas and Hello, but I actually think it's of more interest to IP lawyers than to privacy lawyers. Um, so what I want to come back to before I leave the um, Court of Appeal cases was this question of true and false information and where we've got to on that. All, all I wanted to say was that the cases to date um, have tended to involve mixed information, true and false. We haven't actually had, I think, an entirely false information case. What was interesting, um, applying the learning from those Court of Appeal cases in the Max Mosley case, was the approach Mr Justice Eady took to the initial injunction application. I don't know if you appreciate what he did, but he applied the Bonnard and Perryman rule, which is no injunction in libel unless it's plain as a pikestaff that um, any defensive justification won't be made out, hived off the other privacy complaints. So although the um, allegations about Nazi regalia, etc., were part of the complaint in privacy, he thought there was a risk of privacy outflanking the established injunction test in libel if he applied some different rule. And so 
he subdivided the claim at the injunction stage. That echoes something um, the Court of Appeal suggested in McKennett and Ash, which was that if you tried to outflank the libel rules by using the cause of action in privacy, the court would be alive to that, and in particular would be alive to it at the interlocutory injunction stage. Um, where else on the common law? Yes, a appropriation of image. One of the frustrating things about the way in which the appeal in Douglas and Hello was limited was we've not got a firm answer yet on a, a very interesting aspect of the von Hanover case, which was considered in the Court of Appeal in Douglas and Hello, which was whether this developing law of privacy actually has as one of its targets the control of image rights. In um, the von Hanover case, the one of the interveners, a, a disgruntled media magazine, tried to argue that this was all about the control of image rights. And there's a passage in the European Court of Human Rights judgment which suggests that not only that may be right, but it may be legitimate territory for Article 8. Th that finds an echo in a, a, what I think is an, an underappreciated first instance decision of Mr. Justice Mungby's called Re Roddy. In, in Re Roddy, there was a child who um, had, upon I think reaching 18, chosen to say something about her experiences whilst in care and had um, commercially exploited some information about that. Other information about the same period of her life was disclosed without her authority. And Mr. Justice Mumby um, rejected an argument that by disclosing some of that part of her life, she had sold the pass. What he saw, and I think this is why I think this is important, he saw that the commercial exploitation of private information is actually the exercise of one's convention rights. It's not a forfeiture of one's convention rights. And it doesn't leave others free to exercise or to override your rights just because you have taken um, some steps to exploit them yourself. And, and that's essentially what the Court of Appeal thought in Douglas and Hello, where part of the damages were awarded for interference with the commercial exploitation of the photographs by um, Douglas and Zeta Jones. And the Court of Appeal thought that was a permissible target of this developing cause of action. That part of the Court of Appeal judgment is particularly difficult, I think, in the light of what the House of Lords say about the IP considerations. And it's an area which I think is ripe for a further case. I, I was then, um, before turning to the statutory provision, just going to say something quickly about remedies. Um, for a long time, having recognised this new cause of action, uh, the English courts turned their face against substantial awards of damages. You'll recall um, Naomi Campbell got, I think, £3,500, including aggravated damages. Lady Archer got £2,500. Douglas and Zeta Jones got 3750 and Lorena McKennett, 5000 Those awards were so obviously out of kilter with awards in defamation cases, which also have their origin, at least on some analyses in Article 8, that it was inevitable um, levels were going to have to rise. It was also necessary commercially because it's just not a deterrent of £5,000 or £3,500 award. Um, 
settlements um, for tens of thousands became commonplace and then finally last year we had Max Mosley in at £60,000 in a case which had some unpromising features for the claimant. Um, and so it seems to me that privacy damages really have come of age, particularly um, in circumstances where aggravated damages are likely to be available in a lot of cases. And, and I think an important aspect of that is the Court of Appeal in Douglas and Hello in the trial appeal, effectively saying that the Court of Appeal in the interim injunction appeal were wrong to think damages would be an adequate remedy. And what they were concerned about was that the damages which actually um, were awarded after the millions of pounds in legal fees were under £5,000 each for Douglas and Zeta Jones and how that could have been an adequate remedy and to stop the grant of an inflammatory injunction I, I think was puzzling to the later Court of Appeal. Now, I'm going to go next to the Data Protection Act. What I would remind you of, and there's a section in the paper on it, is that it's not only the Data Protection Act where Parliament's intervened in this area. The Protection from Harassment Act 1997 is also important and in non-media, non-publication situations can actually be a very potent weapon. It can be used in conjunction with privacy, can be used in conjunction with informational aspects of the case which attract the DPA. But the, the second half of what I want to talk about is um, all on the Data Protection Act. It, as you'll all appreciate, it reflects um, a council directive. That council directive is self, um, it, sorry, is rather expressly based upon the balancing of Article 8 and Article 10 rights. It's Article 8 driven, but sections in the directive, particularly um, some of the recitals, are all about Article 10. I, um, when I like to depress some of my newspaper clients, tell them that I think when people wake up to it, there will be a great string of summary judgment applications up and down the country against local newspapers, against the tabloids, all based on the Data Protection Act. Because there is basically no defence to the Data Protection Act cause of action for unauthorised publication of private data unless Section 32 applies. Section 32 is brilliant for the serious um, broadcast industry, the serious media. It's hopeless for the gutter press and it's hopeless for the local media because you've got to have a reasonable belief in the existence of a public interest. How many tabloid stories would pass that test? Virtually none. How many local um, newspaper stories would pass that test? Hardly any. And, and um, I suspect that in, as times get harder in the legal profession and people are, as they're presently doing, casting around for convenient, easily replicable types of litigation in which they can represent people on a contingency fee, which our courts are about to embrace, um, they will stumble across the Data Protection Act and they will see that it's actually a pretty easy cause of action to run. The, the heart of the Data Protection Act is um, a statutory duty imposed by Section 4.4 on any data controller. Um, the data control in relation to the processing carried on by that data controller. Processing is a term of breathtaking width. It's hard to think of anything you can do with information which doesn't come within processing from the very first time it comes to your attention 
to the time you publish it to the world. Everything in between is covered in one way or another by processing, subject to a point I'm going to come to in a minute. But on the present state of the law, that is what processing means. Um, data controllers are um, all over the place. I'm one. Every newspaper's one. Virtually every freelance journalist is one. Um, lots of them aren't registered, don't know their data controllers. Doesn't mean that the statutory duty doesn't apply to them. The statutory duty is to comply with the data protection principles. They're set out in Schedule 1. They start in simple fashion. You have to process all data fairly and lawfully. Fairly is a pretty serious word when you think about the way the media cases have unrolled. The camera over the wall at Lady Spencer, the long lens in the Edinburgh Street, none of it's possibly fair, is it? It's all going to fall at that level. Um, technically, and this is one of the technicalities which puts people off grappling with the Data Protection Act, you have to process um, the data in such a way that at least one of the conditions in Schedule 2 is met, and if it's sensitive personal data, at least one of the conditions in Schedule 3 is met, and there's no substitute for the cold towel exercise of going through those gateways and seeing whether any of them apply. What's coming into focus is that um, sensitive personal data cases are extremely problematic. It's very difficult usually to bring yourself within any of the gateways. Ordinary um, personal data cases, it's usually paragraph six in Schedule 2. And what um, the Murray case seems to establish is paragraph six of Schedule 2 is essentially a summary of the Article 8, Article 10 balancing exercise. The same sort of features that you'd put in to the um, Baroness Hale proportionality exercise come into play under paragraph six of Schedule 2. But there's quite a lot of other important um, matters in the data protection principles. Another one is you can only obtain data for one purpose. And if you obtain it for one purpose, you can't use it for another. And this is leading to all sorts of problems, not yet in the courts, but before the um, regulator, the information commissioner in the tribunal, over use of local authority data. Local authorities, for example, routinely get information for rating purposes about empty properties. They then use it, thinking it's in the public interest, for policing purposes. You can't. It's unlawful. You can't get it for rating and use it for policing. Um, personal data has to be adequate and not excessive. One can see a statutory echo there of the five bits of the information in Naomi Campbell. You can use what you need to use. You can't chuck in more information, photographs, details, and because it, it will contravene the third data protection principle. It has to be accurate. It has to be kept up to date. You can't keep it for any longer than necessary. You have to take into account the data subject's rights. You have to have systems. Um, terrible example in the early days of matrix chambers. Some overseas solicitor rang up with a money laundering case, told one of the practice managers that they had a case where it looked fairly obvious that the funds were the proceeds of money laundering, especially as they'd um, named the two Rottweilers after um, certain figures who were involved in the original robbery. That all went down on our electronic system because no one in the practice room had heard of the Data Protection Act. It was absolutely awful. If I hadn't discovered that and someone involved in the case had made a subject access request, you'd have seen what we'd put on the system. 
Um, and then lastly, and this is having a huge effect in the international community, personal data can only be transferred to another territory if they have proper uh, legislative controls um, to protect the rights of data subjects. I, I spoke on a platform a few years ago with a New Zealand Court of Appeal judge, and she explained to me that at that time, the New Zealand legislature was introducing legislation on data protection for the simple reason that it was interfering with commerce between Europe and New Zealand to not have in place data protection um, legislation. And that applies worldwide. So the shadow that the eighth data protection principle casts is an enormous one. Um, there haven't been many cases on data protection so far. Naomi Campbell. Um, ultimately succeeded on it. Um, at the moment, the narrow uh, um, scope of the concept of personal data tends to limit the cases. You probably all know that in Durant, the Court of Appeal said personal information had to be essentially biographical in nature and relate to the data subject's life events. That, that is a bit of a plank in a shipwreck for uh, data controllers because you can sometimes escape a finding that um, you're actually um, dealing with personal data at all. Um, what I want to move on to, though, because I've perhaps been going rather a long time before getting to this um, aspect of the talk, is the way in which data protection is diverging somewhat from the judge-made law of privacy. Um, you probably remember that in Naomi Campbell in the Court of Appeal, the Data Protection Act claim failed because the Court of Appeal construed Section 32 of the Act so as to give a media exemption which applied not just prior to publication, which was what Section 32 said and the judge had um, held to mean, but also post-publication. And effectively, they construed it to provide a, an exemption for the media or for any processing of data for journalistic purposes where there was a reasonable belief that the publication or the processing would be in the public interest. That widespread exemption applying both before and after publication is one of the reasons we've had few media Data Protection Act cases since Naomi Campbell. Um, what's odd is that um, that civil law exemption based upon reasonable belief in the public interest wasn't reflected in the parts of the Data Protection Act dealing with criminal liability. In Section 55 of the DPA, there was a defence against a criminal prosecution for unauthorised um, disclosure of data, or more importantly, procuring someone to disclose personal data. That was aimed, amongst other things, at um, journalistic practices in which a source is paid to disclose information about um, targets of articles. But the Section 55 2D defence didn't say that there was a defence against a criminal prosecution if the journalist or publisher reasonably believed there was a public interest. Instead, and I've always suspected this was simply a drafting error, the public interest only applied if the publication actually was justified in the public interest. Now, the real problem that that has is, it, and it's immediately apparent if you think about it, uh, when an investigative journalist is looking into a public interest story, it's often difficult to know whether what you will ultimately establish will be in the public interest. A lot of um, financial misconduct stories turn out to have no legs. 
they turn out to have a perfectly innocent explanation. I did a case years ago for a county council that was accused by the Sunday Times of selling its shares um, on the basis of uh, insider information. It turned out that the share register had just been misread by the journalist. What they were actually doing them was lending them to market makers. So there were no transactions of the sort which the journalist quite reasonably but mistakenly thought existed. And, and that must happen a lot. You must um, be unaware of whether your story will eventually stand up. Now, the newspapers, fortunately, are a powerful enough lobby to get the law changed. And when the Criminal Justice and Immigration Bill was going through Parliament, um, they persuaded the House of Lords to amend Section 78 of that Act to make it clear that Section 55 of the Data Protection Act, which dealt with criminal liability, had a public interest defence based upon a reasonable belief that what you were doing was in the public interest. Um, I have to say it took a lot of pressure on the government to get them to acknowledge that it was an indefensible anomaly. Um, but they did ultimately do so. But, but that's important for a point I'm going to make in a minute. What also happened at the same time was the government backed off on imprisoning journalists. The, the Information Commissioner in particular had become very worked up, and perhaps with some cause, about tabloid abuses of the data protection laws and had suggested that the government needed to introduce custodial sentences. The difficulty with that from a Strasbourg perspective is you have to look at the chilling effect at the right point in time. And the chilling effect doesn't just come from actually imprisoning journalists. It comes from enacting the availability of imprisonment of journalists. That's what really stops investigative journalism. No, not the fact that somebody goes to jail, but the fact that the shadow of imprisonment hangs over you as a journalist. And there's very powerful Strasbourg authority that says that that chilling effect is discernible and that it, therefore any legislation of that sort requires the very clearest justification, requires um, a pressing social need with a sound evidential basis. And it's there that the government got into trouble because the research it commissioned and the regulatory impact assessment it conducted showed that the existing powers of sentencing weren't being used. Even when you got a serious case involving journalists or others, the power to impose an unlimited fine, which is what would really hurt Rupert Murdoch much more than um, one of his journalists going to prison, wasn't used. And in those circumstances, especially as the government didn't foresee a greater number of prosecutions, it, it wasn't difficult to establish that there was no evidence basis on which to introduce this sanction. And again, I'm pleased to say that the government backed off and in Section 77 of the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act, although it um, provided the Secretary of State with a power to introduce custodial sentences, it made that power exercisable only after consultation with media organisations, which I think sends quite a strong signal about how difficult it's going to be in the future, absent compelling evidence, to introduce such a sanction. Now, I want to come back to processing. I mentioned that in Naomi Campbell, the Court of Appeal um, held the journalistic exemption in Section 32 had the widest possible ambit. But before they reached that stage, they also ruled that any processing carried out by a broadcaster or publisher, I'm, I'm sorry, any um, dealing with information by a broadcaster or publisher between initially obtaining the information and finally publishing it would amount to processing 
for the purposes of the Data Protection Act. If that's right, then any um, article or broadcast will inevitably um, engage the Data Protection Act. That was a view expressed without any evidence about the series of operations which are involved in the production of print media or broadcast media articles. What's happened, which is of interest since that time, is that in a, a non-media case, Johnson and the MDU, a subsequent Court of Appeal has chopped up the series of operations which were said to amount to processing in that case. And Johnson and the MDU was a, a case in which the MDU refused to continue the cover of a doctor who'd been the subject of a large number of complaints. And the Court of Appeal thought there were three stages to the relevant processing. One is that the claims officer accessed on the computer all the details of the complaints and made an analysis of them. The second stage was the claims officer exercised a judgment on whether those complaints gave rise to such a risk that it was appropriate to withdraw um, Johnson's cover. The third stage was to enter on the computer the outcome of that exercise of judgment, in other words, the decision to withdraw cover. The majority of the Court of Appeal thought that the first and third phases were processing, getting the material off the computer, putting it back on, but that those didn't actually cause Dr. Johnson any harm. It wasn't what he complained of. What he complained of was that the judgment exercised by the claims officer was unfair. But, says Lord Justice Chadwick, that isn't processing. That's just ordinary um, human mind applied to information of any kind. And therefore, that part, which is what actually does you the harm, isn't processing for the purposes of the Data Protection Act. Uh, Lady Justice Arden dissents, saying that that's flatly inconsistent with Naomi Campbell, where you look at the whole process from start to finish and ask whether the totality of it is processing. Um, I think if my gloomy prediction about a series of um, summary judgments under the Data Protection Act um, starts to appear, the media would be well advised to rerun the processing point that they lost in Naomi Campbell with some proper evidence. Because it just is the second part of what happened in Johnson was what actually caused Dr. Johnson the problem. So also in media cases it's possible to see the selection of the information which is included in the article as what is um, particularly unfair and problematic. I have to say, I don't think it'll work in the long run, because I think what really hurts you in the media case is publication, and that's the processing that, that I think is the real problem. But it's an interesting point to, to, to puzzle over. Then finally, um, where have privacy and data protection got out of kilter? If you read the Max Mosley case, um, the, not the interim, interim injunction case, but the trial judgment, Mr Justice Eady was pressed to rule that there was a defence, or at least a public interest justification, to weigh in the Article 10 scales if the journalists, although mistaken about the Nazi regalia, etc., had genuinely believed on reasonable grounds that there had been a Nazi element to the sex games. He ruled that um, under the present Court of Appeal authorities, that is not a permissible approach. It's not a question of whether the journalists reasonably believe there's a public interest, but whether there actually is a public interest. Now, what that means, I suggest, is that the judge-made law of privacy, what it throws into sharp focus, is that the judge-made law of privacy 
is out of step with Section 32 and Section 55 as amended. Under both those statutory formulae, which reflect public policy as discerned by Parliament, it is enough to have a reasonable belief that what you're publishing is in the public interest. It is odd, I think, that a judge um, isn't concerned, or, or, or it's odd that a judge should not be concerned at a divergence between the public policy which underlies the legislation and what ought essentially to be the same public policy consideration which informs the reconciliation of Article 10 and Article 8 in the judge-made area of privacy. They've both got the same target. They're both trying to strike the balance between Articles 8 and 10. I don't see how it can be right under statute, uh, a statute dealing with publication of private information, for reasonable belief to be enough and for Parliament to repeat that as recently as 2008. And yet the common law judgments to go on saying it's a matter for the judge, it's not for the journalist to take a reasonable view on reasonable grounds, it's a matter for the judge to say you got it right or you didn't. In other words, the, the very difficult um, standard of judicial hindsight is what you meet on a privacy claim, the much more um, industry realistic standard of reasonable belief is um, what you meet under the statute. I think the um, matter needs to go back. I don't think it can be done in the courts, short of the House of Lords, but I think it needs to go back before Parliament. Um, I think there will be an opportunity in the next few months under one or more of the bills where data protection issues are being raised. And I think it's quite difficult to see how Parliament won't have to try and introduce some uniformity. Um, there's a lot of precedent um, in the employment field in particular. The House of Lords in recent years has more than once refused to develop the common law because Parliament has spoken of a, in a particular way in statute in a similar field. And I think we need to do the same in this case. I think that's probably all I need to say. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, for the purposes of the tape, I've got to repeat, this is being podcast and photos are being taken. Uh, who has... Um, any questions for Andrew We'll run, by the way, uh, 10 minutes over the time because we started late. Um, Thanks. Anyone want to start us off? Uh, I, I just have a very basic question. Was about the, you mentioned that Naomi Campbell had, had lied about her not taking it. Why, why would that be relevant? She was regarded as a role model for other models. Some of the articles had said things like, I feel sorry for young girls coming into modelling. They're under great pressure. Um, but I've found ways of resisting the, the pressure to take drugs. So she had set herself up as with false virtue. So, um, the word which occurs a lot in argument is hypocrisy. If you paint yourself in a particular fashion as part of your presentation to the public, you can be debunked. Um, you can, your feet of clay can be identified or whatever metaphor you want to use. But that, that was the thinking. But, but the, some of the later cases have expressed some doubt about this role model argument, particularly if it goes too far. I mean, if, if every minor footballer or model is a role model, then it's... It, has a, has a rather long reach. 
you mentioned um, the huge litigation costs and the very small damages, even though they're now rising a bit in uh, controversy. Of course, they've been declining in defamation over the years. From, in your practical experience, why do people litigate these cases when the rewards that they're likely to get, if they can't get an injunction, are likely to be so small financially, the risk, if they lose, is so enormous? I mean, cost-benefit mm. doesn't seem very obvious to me. No, um, and it's not just cost-benefit. The media circus, which accompanies a privacy trial, is far worse than it's an exponential scaling up of the damage done to you by the original article. And the, the coverage during the Naomi Campbell trial, there probably were only a small number of millions who read the original article. There were tens of millions who read the coverage of the trial. So it's a very good question. I think in an injunction case, one can see why. I mean, Lord Brown was trying to save his job. Um, he was, I think he was about to give evidence in Texas when the article was going to be published. He imagined the first question from the attorney in um, the Texas courtroom might have been about his private life. Um, but after the injunction application fails, the cases are few and far between and have mostly been taken by people who were seeking to make a point of principle, as Naomi Campbell was, as Max Mosley was. But, but you're right, it's, it's a very unsatisfactory feature of this area of the law that there is no proportionate way to get a remedy. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, in practice, from your experience, to what extent uh, uh, do the new ways in which the media can uh, publish potentially infringing uh, information, i.e., for example, through uh, RSS feeds or through website, to what extent do these new technologies expose them further in practice to privacy claims? Is that uh, reflected at the moment in practice? I think it, is, I think it does tend to be reflected in practice in that Every claim you start or defend involves not just the hard copy version, if there is one, but also any electronic publications. And also, there is an increasing number of electronic-only cases about, for example, Facebook, which appreciate the recent applause case. Um, but I think you're right. I, I think, A, it does um, expose them more, and B, I think it exposes them more under the Data Protection Act, because it's much more difficult to compartmentalize the processing stages where it's all electronic, much more obviously in the, the realm of processing. I was just wondering, um, you, you said these cases uh, are not very common, uh, but then you also said that the Data Protection Act might trigger a lot of new cases. Why would that be? And uh, I just wanted to also say that I do not share your prediction about this certainty about the UK system having um, contingency fees, because looking at what the Civil Justice Council is now doing and what the Ministry of Justice is now responded to what they're doing, it seems that's not going to happen because it's a very dangerous financial arrangement that's typical for the US system and it's not considered to be a good idea here. So why would this new Data Protection Act trigger cases um, in this area where people don't want to litigate anyway? Why, why would that happen? Well, two things. I'm, I hope you're right about contingency fees. Um, I hope I'm right. Yeah, I hope you're right. I mean, I, I think it's a terrible idea that we might go into contingency fees, but that, that's another whole evening's conversation. The, the, the reason I think there might be um, a wave of DPA claims, it may, may well not happen because it's 
um, a sector that doesn't traditionally litigate, a sector of the public that doesn't traditionally litigate, is I think they're easy to run on a CFA. They're very predictable. You don't need contingency fees. Just do it on a conditional fee. And those are already with us. So, so, so they're very easy. And conditional fees work terribly well on a straightforward claim which is repeatable. And, and what's, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, some of you may know something about um, the mass equal pay litigation that's going on. Historically, um, low paid women workers never dreamt of bring equal pay claims. They've been available since 1975. But on the basis of um, contingency fee arrangements, there is now widespread use of equal pay claims. Um, whole areas in the Northeast are male-shotted. Is there a woman in this house who used to work in the NHS? Is there a woman in this house who used to work in local government? If so, you can have a free lawsuit which may recover tens of thousands of pounds. It would be very easy to um, link your lawyer's database to local newspaper databases, see that an article was written about Mrs. Snodgrass of Station Road, which mentioned her son's performance at school, and you could write to her and say, there's a clear-cut claim under the Data Protection Act. We'll take it on a no-win, no-fee basis. You're likely to recover at least £10,000. You've got nothing to lose. And if I was... A solicitor recently made redundant, as a lot of solicitors are being. That model, that business model, might appeal to me quite a lot. Um, it would certainly wouldn't be nominal. It, I think the starting point would probably be five, the five thousand that the early privacy claimants got. Um, just, just. I mean, I, I had a question about um, how this all relates to to academic research because I mean, one gets a strong impression that um, universities want to interpret the Data Protection Act in relation to academic research, either through no recourse to any of the exemptions in the Data Protection Act whatsoever, or recourse only to a limited set of exemptions, which certainly not to Section 32. And this seems to pose enormous problems, um, particularly as the Section 32 officially does cover literary yes, absolutely. as well. Mm. So, I mean, maybe you could expand on on, on, on that problem about, because clearly journalists are not the only people who are engaged in this sort of territory. No, I, mean, I, I didn't bring the Act. There are a whole lot of other exemptions, aren't there? Um, there are not only the run of exemptions of which Section 32 forms part, but also in the schedule there are a whole run of exemptions. I had a feeling there might be something which mentions research, but as I, I haven't... I'm, I suppose what I'm saying is that hmm. journalists obviously do research for their stories. Academics publish literary material. So this, this tension in the act between putting various purposes out there when in fact both journalists and yes. academics involve themselves in research and in literary or, or publication, whether you could explore that. Um, yes, I mean, I don't know. As you say, Section 32, although it's the journalistic exemption, it is tied to the special purposes, isn't it, which include purposes of literature and art. Um, but I'm afraid I, I can't off the cuff shed much light on how Section 32 might or might not be used. Um, I mean, I can't see why journalism should have other than a broad meaning. I mean, I think publication in serious academic journals is as much 
publication and indeed is very much more likely to um, attract the perspective that it makes a contribution to a serious debate. So I'd have thought the, so long as the, the um, ultimate end product or, or one end product is publication in some sort of journal or perhaps even electronically to those who want to read it, then Section 32 may well apply and likely to be in a much more comfortable position than um, the tabloids under Section 32. But I, but I do think there's something in one of the schedules about research. I just have, I'd have to look that up. Uh, yeah. find a bit to interpret in that way. Um, I mean, Section 32 isn't a contender because it requires a reasonable belief in the public interest. Um, there's, a, there's a big chunk of it. I mentioned the Faustian Pact. There's a big chunk of the tabloids, which is consent. And, and so those people are never going to sue. The, the minor celebrities who take £5,000 for a topless photograph, that sort of thing. It's a Data Protection Act claim which will never occur. Um, the real problems are the, the little snippets of news about unfortunate nobodies who they don't consent, the journalists just pick them up. Um, I'm not sure there would be much judicial enthusiasm for preserving that slightly verminous level of journalism. I mean, I, I, I don't, if I were the judge, I wouldn't start off on the basis that that made a, an important contribution to society, that kind of journalism. And no doubt it, people like to read about, um, I don't know why we don't have a good word for schadenfreude, but you know, people do like to read about overweight celebrities and people whose hair transplants go wrong and things like that, but it's not usually consensual. I, I wouldn't think there'd be much judicial impetus to support it. The in fact, go much beyond those types of cases, though. 
because I'm not sure that, that the elimination of that kind of journalism is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people might protest against it, but... No, I, I agree. I mean, I think there would be... The, the way in is a, a localised application of the von Hanover distinction between things that count and things that don't. And what Mr Justice Patton did at first instance in the Murray case, which I think made a lot of sense in some ways. He said that England culturally, or Scotland, Britain culturally, is a place where when you ride on a bus, you don't expect to do so in a zone of privacy, even if that's what you'd like. It's, we, we have a, a society that's much more interactive than that. And although um, that approach didn't succeed in the Court of Appeal, it's, it wasn't a trial, so one doesn't actually have a ruling. But I think the, there is scope for a British or UK, if you like, perspective on the von Hanover distinction between things that are worth including in journalistic endeavour and things that aren't, and perhaps you know, expanding it a bit further than the serious issues about politicians, serious issues about um, public duties. But, but I don't think you could take it as far as the articles about celebrities, waistline bulging, etc. And those, I, I think it would be a perfectly satisfactory price to pay, personally. I, um, I show my cards. I mean, I think our serious media is wonderful. I think our bits of our tabloid media is a disgrace. Well, <laughs> you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought and a lot of things to continue thinking about. Um, Wine and refreshments are in the centre um, following this, and thank you all for coming. Yes, thank you. <clears throat>